Amen. You may be seated. So in today's sermon, we're going to continue on through Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 22 now. Um, If you have your Bible, that's great, or you can look at the text on pages 11 and 12 in your bulletin. We're going to begin in uh, Luke 22, verse 14. Kind of a long reading today. I'll try to preach shorter as a result. We'll see. (laughs) And when the hour came... Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. For behold, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You'll deny me three times. 
And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. And our Father, we pray now that you will work in our hearts and our lives as we hear this weighty text. In Jesus' good name, amen. So what I'd like to do as we start is I'd like to draw your attention to verses 14 and verses 53. Keep hold of your bulletin. In verse 14, the hour has come. Verse 53, Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And what we're seeing here is that if we have finally arrived at kind of the summit of this gospel. This is the great climax. It's all been leading toward this. And what we're noticing here is two things are happening at once. One is that this is the hour of God's plan. Verse 14 says this is the hour. <laughs> and Luke has been showing us throughout his gospel that for centuries, everything in God's plan is moving to this, down to the year, the month, the week, the day. This is the hour. It is finally here. Everything in God's plan is moving toward this. And the time and the place here, if you look at it, I mean, it's obviously quite exquisitely arranged. But if you look back at verse 1 in chapter 22, you'll notice that it is the Passover. Like Passover. You guys know Passover? You know, lamb, blood, angel of death passes over, the power of Egypt is crushed, Passover. Great timing. And because of Passover, there are gazillions of people in Jerusalem. Throngs of pilgrims have come. Interestingly, also because of that, because of the need for crowd control and also because of some political stuff that happens at this feast, a bunch of Romans have come down from Caesarea in the north. A lot of soldiers in town to keep peace. Pilate is in town and so on. And the city right now is just crackling with Israel's history, Israel's identity, a lot of political tensions. And Jesus, the king from heaven, is about to step onto the public stage one final time, and he's already told his disciples he's going to accomplish a Passover and an exodus that's going to make that first one look like just a pale shadow by comparison. This is the hour. Big stuff. But that very same hour of God's appointment, Jesus says, is the hour of the power of darkness. Because while everything that we're reading here is fulfilling God's plan, fulfilling God's will, that's the big story. It's also going to seem for a time as if the king's enemies have vanquished him. They have absolutely gotten the upper hand. And the atmosphere as we read, is, you can feel it, it is, the atmosphere is just thick with this menacing presence, not just of the Jewish rulers who just hate Jesus and are looking for a way to kill him, and not just the menacing presence of the Roman legions, which are cynical and cruel, brutally cruel, but the menacing presence of Satan himself. We're told back in verse 3, if you have your Bible, that Satan has entered into Judas Iscariot's heart. Satan wants to sift Peter and the other disciples like wheat. The serpent is here. You can just feel it. It's the hour of the power of darkness. Now, it'd be very easy to look at this hour and just focus on the fact that it's unique. And it is unique. Nothing like this happened before. Nothing like this has happened since. And you could read the story that way, and that would not be wrong, except that in this hour that's coming upon him, the king has already told his disciples that they are going to experience similar sufferings. They're going to bear a cross too. In fact, he says in verse 28, you'll notice, you have already stood with me in my trials. So as Satan has been attacking Jesus up to this point, the disciples have been with him in that, and he tells them that they are going to be targeted with him in the coming assault of Satan. Satan, verse 30, uh, 
31 wants to sift, and it's plural in Greek, he wants to sift y'all, all of you guys. He's going after you as much as he's going after me. You're going to walk through this hour of the power of darkness with me, and you will continue to experience hours in which there will be the power of darkness come against you. You go on in the book of Acts, Luke's second volume in his story, and you see the very same forces that came against the Messiah come against his followers. There are other hours of darkness to come. Not quite like this, but definitely hours in which the the power of darkness seems to, to be supreme. And what I'm here to say to you today is that even today, 2,000 years later, Jesus' situation is very different now. He is not about to go to a cross. He is sitting on the throne in heaven. But even today, brothers and sisters, you understand well, there are hours when God's people in this world, even though Jesus reigns, they feel that they are beset by evil forces that just seem to have the upper hand. These hours come. Now, to be clear, I am not talking here about having a bad day. You know, this runny nose, it's so annoying. Look, there are lots of things we experience in this world that are just common to humankind. What I'm talking about are times when, as God's people, you feel palpable resistance as you are seeking to please and serve the Lord. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? You are trying to follow Jesus and do what you believe as best you can tell God wants you to do. And there, is just, there are times when it just feels like stuff is just shooting up through the floorboards and just palpable resistance. This can happen in your own soul. There are moments when some of you guys know what it's like just have an absolute storm erupt inside of you in your emotional lives, in your mental lives. Obviously, there are Christians in this world who could talk about legit persecution. We talk about it in the States. Some people really experience it. You could die for following Jesus. We all in this world know something of what it's like to have hostility aimed at you because you follow Jesus. Cultural rot. When you look around sometimes, you're just like, you know, there's almost nothing in our cultural life that supports faithfulness to Jesus at all. That's resistance we experience. Relational deterioration. I can't even tell you over the last month or so how many people close to me I have heard of who are experiencing like serious relational deterioration, not just between them and people who don't follow Jesus, between Christians. Whole institutions fall to pieces because Christians are fighting. That's resistance to the, to the work of the kingdom. It's almost like you feel like the demonic force is just kind of stirring things up. Sometimes just devastating circumstances. You know, you're just going along and God just just puts a wrecking ball through your life, through something, a death, you know, a a, a tragedy, whatever. All of us feel the drag of the coming tide of death. You know, if you really look at your life, you're building a lot of sandcastles, a lot of us. You're trying to do stuff for Jesus, and you realize about 20 minutes after you're gone, it's going to be gone. And that can be hard to live with. There is a sense of just stuff pulling at your attempts to please the Lord and serve him. And I want to look today at how Jesus meets this hour of the power of darkness. What are his priorities? What's his focus? And I also want to look briefly at the disciples, how they're very different. So we're going to begin with Christ's example. I just want to look for a moment. What do you see as you look at Jesus in the hour of the power of darkness? Well, one thing you see very obviously is purpose. Jesus has a sense in this hour of darkness. He has a sense of purpose. He knows what God sent him to do. He knows his mission from the Father, and he is determined to do it. 
I try to imagine being a 33-year-old young man on your way to a Roman cross where you are going to suffer the wrath of Almighty God upon the sins of the world. I don't really know how you wrap your mind around that, but that is no way to spend a weekend. And Jesus says, I am going to do it. I'm going to suffer. He's been telling his disciples about this for some years. And in verse 42, you really see the purpose of our Lord is he's just in such agony, blood is running down his face from his stress and anxiety. And he says, God, please take this cup from me, but I will do your will. That's purpose. Now, is that an example to us? Because you could say, and it's totally true, look, that's Jesus' mission. I don't, that's not my mission. It's true. That's unique. His mission's unique. The, the suffering's related to Jesus' mission. Obviously unique. There is one redeemer, right? There is one savior of the world, one lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus. Is this really an example to us? I want to suggest that it is. In your hours of darkness, you can look at the purposefulness of our Lord, and it, it is an example to you, and here's why. Do you know what, what Jesus' intent was in fulfilling his mission? It was that you could have a mission. You have a mission because Jesus had a mission. Jesus came to redeem people. That means this. He came to bring people back to God. And guess what your mission is? Your mission is to live as people who've been brought back to God. Your lives, as those Jesus gave his life for, they, your entire life in God's eyes is for one purpose, and that is God wants you, having been bought with the blood of Jesus, he wants your life to show forth the God who redeemed you. That's why you're, you think you're in this world to make money and have a lifestyle. God is keeping you in this world to show forth the God who redeemed you. That's what your life is about. And, and, and you do that sometimes by just who you are. Do you realize when you live, let's just say, to take one example of the kind of character that shows forth God, when you live gratefully, when people are around you and they see you in your life are aware that it's all a gift of the Lord and you live that way, that's being a certain kind of person who shows God. Or when you are gracious to other people in a world where, you know, grace is, you know, there's not a lot of grace. But because you've been loved by God, you are gracious to people. Just in who you are, you are showing forth what happens when God gets a hold of somebody's life and, make, and makes someone his child, brings them back to himself. Your, your, your gratitude, your, your graciousness, especially when you're really having a hard time and people see this in you, just who you are shows God. But not just who you are, of course. God also gives us a lot of stuff to do. The Bible calls this good works. And every day in your lives, you guys have something to do and I have something to do that will show by our work something of how God creates things, how God crafts things, how God cares for things. You know, whether it's, you know, Gene teaching tennis or Frank moving freight around the city or, you know, John selling cars or Sal working in trees or, you know, you moms that are working, you know, to raise these little people or, you know, you're sitting at a desk doing whatever it is you're doing or you're a student in school, whatever. Like, you are showing what someone looks like when God has made them his own and they are working to show how God works, to create and craft and care and cultivate. This is what your life is about. That is your mission. And you will suffer in that mission. You will be opposed by the evil one in that mission as Jesus was opposed. Now, we have to admit that our sufferings sometimes involve a little more than what's going on with Jesus. I mean, look, sometimes I like to think that I'm suffering because like Jesus, I'm being really faithful to my mission. 
Here's the reality. Sometimes Ben Miller is suffering because God needs to redirect Ben Miller in his mission or even turn Ben Miller entirely around in his mission. But no matter what the suffering is for as God is using it, as you suffer, as you pursue this mission of showing forth God, every moment of resistance and opposition and suffering is your opportunity for resoluteness in fulfilling that mission. In your hour of darkness, how, my brother, my sister, I ask myself this, how will we set our faces and stir up our strength? I am going to show forth God in this situation. That's the purpose of our Lord. You see something else, you see people. So Jesus has purpose. I will do the Father's will. But you also see people. From the very beginning of what I read, Jesus is actively fortifying the people who are with him in this hour of darkness. He says, I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you because I, I'm not, this isn't going to happen again until the kingdom of God has been birthed. And it's like Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know, he's not just thinking about himself. I, I have no living idea how Jesus can be this other focus in this moment. I would have been looking for a therapist to just kind of guide me through the mental stress of what's about to come. Jesus is looking around, and it's like he's saying to these disciples, guys, there is going to be an incredibly hard labor to usher in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to be eating and sitting and drinking with you for a while. We're going to be, there's going to be some really rough water ahead. And so I want you at this table to just let me set before you guys God's love for you. God's saving work for you. You don't even know what it means, this is my body given for you yet. You don't even know this, what it means, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. But I just want to set before you, God is about to do a new thing that is going to bring his kingdom. And he tells them in verse 28, and you guys are going to sit at my table on that new thing that God's doing. And you're going to, you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and he's just sitting there at that table gathering these disciples around God's promises and around God's provisions, strengthening their faith, strengthening their hope. He assures them in verse 32 that I am praying for you. Assures them he loves them. He warns them. He instructs them. So he's got a table and he's just bringing people around it and he's just helping them get ready for, for, for walking through this hour of darkness. And it's very interesting to notice that one of Satan's major schemes in hours of darkness in the lives of God's people, he wants to divide and scatter the flock. He wants to separate you not only from the Lord, he wants to separate you from each other. That is a satanic agenda. And Jesus is not having anything of it. He, is a, he has a shepherd's heart. He loves his brethren and he, he gathers them and he feeds them and they're not a very promising bunch as we'll see shortly. You know, it's not like this is, you know, a church like, man, you know, you want to go to this church. Like, th this is just glory. No, these guys are, you know, they're, they're wobbly. But he gathers them and he feeds them and it's interesting what he says to Peter. He says, after Satan has done his worst to you, Peter, and I have converted you, I've turned you, I've kept you, you strengthen your brethren. You set a table. You gather people. You strengthen their faith. You don't let Satan divide the flock. And the third thing you notice with Jesus, not just his purpose on his mission, not just the people he gathers around him, you also obviously do see prayer. I told you guys a few weeks ago 
at our last presbytery meeting, um, Adriano Silva, the pastor out in Bohemia, he, he, he gave a wonderful little exhortation where he talked about that moment, we read about it some chapters ago, where Jesus is up on the mountain of transfiguration. You remember that? I mean, you talk about a mountaintop experience. This is a moment of such clarity. I mean, the disciples, they're like, we get it. <laughs> we know who you are. We know what you're here to do, Jesus, and it's gonna be awesome. And they're excited. They go down the mountain. Guess what the next thing is they meet? They walk down into an absolute spiritual melee a father has brought a demon-possessed boy who is just thrashing and foaming, and there's just this horrific, chilling, demonic manifestation, and the disciples cannot cast this thing out. The crazy thing is, they've cast out demons before. They should know how to do this, and they are powerless. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement to them. He says, bring him to me, because this does not change except through prayer. What are you doing? You guys think because you have some experience being a disciple that you suddenly just have all this power? It comes from me. You bring the situation to me. That's prayer. Bring it to me. And no matter how seasoned you and I are, when, when okay, you know, we sit here and we feel confident some Sundays maybe. When you, when you really hit an hour of darkness, it doesn't matter how seasoned you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, how, many, how much theology you've read. Your only hope to stand against the withering fire of Satan in an hour of real darkness, let alone, like these disciples, to cast out some demons, to wrest some territory from the evil one. Your only hope is to cry out to the Lord. Bring this situation to me. You know how I know this? Because Jesus prays. In this horror of darkness that's coming upon him, he prays. If he prays, you think we ought to pray? I love the fact that in verse 32, he tells his disciples, by the way, I'm praying for you. Does that comfort you, brothers and sisters? You don't even sometimes know how to pray for you. You don't have the will to pray for you. Thank God Jesus is praying for you. But he tells his disciples in verse 40, you need to pray or you will enter into temptation. You say, Father, lead us not into temptation. You better pray. You better pray. Because prayer is your anchor chain when Satan is trying to sink your faith. There's purpose, there's people, there's prayer. It's interesting to me and then we'll be done with Christ's example. It's interesting to me that what Jesus wants is a prayer meeting. What he wants is to pray with other, with other people. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's alone. And yet he's not alone. Because the Father is with him, sending angels to minister to him, strengthening him, hearing his cries. And brothers and sisters, I, you, you know this well, you've ever been through a really, really, really dark time. In your darkest hours, when the power of darkness is the most intense, here is going to be the brutal reality. For most of you, like your Lord, you will be alone. But you're not alone, because the Father is with you, and God is enough in those deepest pits. Pray to him. He hears your prayers, and he strengthens his son, even if he has to send angels to do it. Purpose, people, prayer. But that thing about the prayer meeting brings us to some cautionary tales. I'll move to this a little more quickly, but we've looked at Christ's example, the purpose in his mission, the people he gathers around to strengthen their faith, the, the prayerfulness. Now I want to talk briefly about some cautionary tales because we're going to look at the disciples a little bit now. And if we are honest, brothers and sisters, I speak to those of you who have experience, in hours of real darkness, when the power of darkness is just intense, we're not Jesus, are we? <laughs> I'm not Jesus. And the disciples here show us how 
in times when there is the power of darkness at work, how clueless we can be. And also they show us how when we finally kind of wake up and truly feel the darkness that is coming against us, this palpable resistance and opposition, we're not clueless now, we're kind of awake finally, just how compromised we can become. Clueless and compromised. So in the clueless category, I'd like you to notice, first of all, the squabblers, the squabblers. Do you see this in verse 24? Now this is clueless. At this table, I mean, try to wrap your minds around this. At this table, the Passover supper, the last supper before the Son of God gives his life for his people. With all the, I mean, you're at the the table eating the Passover with Jesus. With all the glory that this table remembers reaching all the way back to Egypt and all the glory this table foreshadows about the Son of God giving his life, his body, his blood. You're at this table. And they're picking at each other about who's going to be regarded as the greatest. They're kind of pushing and shoving. You ever sat at your table with your kids and you can't even eat dinner because they're being so just at each other? This never happens in my house, mind you, but I hear this happens. And you just want to look around this table at these disciples and be like, guys, do you even? What is making them quarrel and squabble at this table for the sake of heaven, what is going on? Well, this squabbling is generated by what generates all squabbling, all conflict, and that is these poor disciples in their cluelessness, they are putting self-advancement ahead of service. They're putting self-advancement ahead of service. You know what puts an end to conflict? Any of you who've ever raised kids, you know this. Kids squabble. You know what will shut a squabble down? Serving. If your kids don't have hearts to serve, they're, they're open to the kind of selfishness that makes people squabble, and adults, we are no different. And that's what's going on here. These, these men with Jesus, are, they're, they're not in a serving mindset. They are putting self-advancement ahead of serving. And the reality for God's people in hours of darkness that come upon us, if you're gonna have, be kind of in the right frame toward that darkness and and not just be lost in yourself. You need to be busy serving, caring for others in Jesus' name. And if you are doing that, if you are, if you're kind of got your eyes on Jesus and you're just busy, you know, in pain, in suffering, in hardship, in darkness, yes, but you're just busy caring for other people in in, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Brothers and sisters, you're just not going to have time in your life for all the ways that we can end up throwing shade at each other's strengths and throwing throwing shade at each other's virtues and and each other's blessings. You're not gonna have time to sit around magnifying other people's faults. You're not gonna have time to try to kind of elbow people down a little bit lower and show yourself to be a little bit better. You know, I'm a little more important. I'm a little more accomplished. I'm a little more glorious. I'm a little more blessed. You don't have time because you're serving. You're not gonna have time for you know, insisting on how right you are and insisting on how wrong other people are. There's going to be a certain mentality of, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm busy serving. I just don't have time for the squabbling, the stupidity that pulls people apart. See, what Jesus is kind of poking at here is he's trying to wake his disciples up to a kingdom mindset that will carry them through this thing that's coming. 
he's kind of helping them see what I'd want you to see and I want me to see. Brothers and sisters, your life is about one of two things, exactly one of two things. It is literally this black and white. You are either living for your own gratification and your own glory or you are living to serve Jesus by serving other people. Do you, do you understand that? It is literally that black and white. You are either about your own glory and gratification or you are about serving Jesus who's serving other people. It's one or the other. And Jesus just kind of like cuts through his disciples squabbling stupidity and he says, guys, verse 27, who's really the important person at the table? The guy sitting or the guy serving? Obviously it's the guy sitting. Here's what's weird, you're sitting and I'm standing serving. You, you, you got to get your kingdom priorities straightened out here. What, what are you doing? You're, you're in no, you, Satan's already got his fingers in you guys. You're, you're clueless. Well, there's another thing in the clueless category, the sleepers. You don't just see squabblers, you see sleepers. Obviously, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are, they're, they're, you know, again, a moment here that demands intense alertness, intense alertness, intense exertion. I mean, the Lord needs companionship right now. Jesus needs people to pray with him. He has just been strengthening you. Now Jesus needs to be strengthened. The Lord of glory, the Son of God, is crying out to his Father. He needs you to be awake and with him. But you know, the disciples are tired and they're a little sad. It's been kind of bad, bad stuff Jesus has been saying about what's coming. and It's been a long day and you know, James, do you have any Netflix on your phone? And they're just kind of, you know. They're asleep spiritually long before they're asleep physically. I mean, it's just hard to imagine how clueless. Demons are working in this situation. Angels are working in this situation. The Lord of glory is sweating blood. And the disciples are trying to get comfortable. You see anything of that in evangelical Christianity today? Just so interested in being comfortable. Then things take a really crazy turn. And we don't see cluelessness now. We actually see compromise because all of a sudden the disciples are wide awake. That has, tends to happen when a bunch of people with swords and clubs shows up. And you see two, two ways that there's compromise. One, you see the militant. You see the militant. It's almost laughable. One of these disciples takes a sword and takes a swing, chops off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. And again, you're just kind of left sort of laughing. I mean, could there be a less effective course of action? First of all, dude, you might need to go take some lessons. If your best shot is takes off somebody's ear, I mean, that's no way to win a war. What do you, what? There couldn't be a less effective course of action. Are you really, you, you have two swords. You're going to take on this entire group that's come to arrest your Lord. There couldn't be a more basic misreading of what's happening here. This is not a conflict of swords and clubs. Luke covers for Peter here. You know, he doesn't mention Peter's name. The other gospels say, oh, this is Peter. And you've got to ask, like, what does Peter think he's doing? You know, you're swinging your sword. Peter, Peter, what do you think you're doing? Because even assuming that this is a war of carnal weapons, even assuming this actually is, what's actually happening right now is a war of fleshly, earthly weapons. What you're doing makes no sense. It's like the people who told me when COVID was breaking out and there was concern about like literally, you know, so, so, so society-wide chaos and someone said, Ben, you need a gun. 
And I remember thinking to myself, dude, if I need a gun, we've got so much bigger problems. What good is a gun going to do me? If I have to like shoot people down in my street, I've already got other issues. Like, Peter, what are you doing? You think you're going to chop your way out? What are you doing? And and you're just missing the whole point of this situation. This is not a war of, of swords and clubs. This is a spiritual thing that's happening. But he's compromised in his view of power, in his view of what will work in this situation. His heart is with the world. And, you know, we do that too, don't we? Don't we often put our trust in princes as we look out at the world? We put our trust in the arm of man, and even on a much smaller scale. I mean, set aside world stuff. In our personal lives, how often, brothers and sisters, do you try to use human force to produce the righteousness of God? Come on. Hearts need to change, and you're going after this with force? What are you doing? that militant spirit that loves power and violence, and we're going to win. Are you going to win with those weapons? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. There's another compromise. You don't just see the militant. You see the chameleon. Peter's a weird dude. I relate to him, but he's weird because he's all about a battle of swords and clubs. He's ready to go with a sword and club. What he cannot handle a few minutes later is the shame of standing with Jesus when all the social trends are against Jesus. That just wigs him out. Being lumped in with Jesus when it's obvious which way this is going socially. And then Peter, for all his bravado a few minutes ago, he just wants to blend in. Let me be just like all these other people. Jesus, who's Jesus? And these are the perennial temptations of the church. Let's win with force or let's just blend in. And Peter the militant and Peter the chameleon, both Peters share something in common. And that is that both of those Peters, they measure the authority of heaven by the metrics of earthly power. And then they position themselves accordingly. Perennial temptations for the church to measure the authority of heaven by the metrics of earthly power and then try to figure out how to act accordingly. And what I want to say say to you, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, is that what you and I need to hear in our hours of darkness, as we look at Christ's example, his purpose, the people, the prayer, and then the disciples, you know, the squabbling, the sleeping, the militancy, the chameleon, when we look at these things, what we really need to hear in our hours of darkness, with Christ on one hand and disciples who look a lot like us on the other, especially when you really, in a moment of darkness, see, I've been clueless. Or I'm really kind of compromised in my heart. What we need to hear is what these disciples needed to hear and what he said to them that night at the table. I have died for you. And I'm praying for you. Jesus has not come to his disciples and smacked them around. He says, my life for yours, my body given for you, my blood for you, and I am praying for you. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That's what you really need to hear in an hour of tremendous darkness because you will never experience the power of darkness like we just read. Because the shepherd of your souls drank the cup of darkness to its bitterest dregs, there will always be light in your times of darkness. And so, brothers and sisters, call upon the Lord and strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. And so lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord. And by thy great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this hour. 
for the love of thine only Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.